1: Before we begin, just a warning. Some listeners may find some of what you're about to hear distressing. Also, there are references to suicide from the beginning, and some strong language. Last time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story.
2: We were forced to go to court. The police said that there would be a warrant issued for us.
3: We need the Greater Manchester Police to be more cooperative and finding the real perpetrator of this horrific crime
4: a system that is in denial about its mistakes. Was
1: there ever any indication to you that he was capable of anything violent? No,
4: not at all. No. They are not using their powers to obtain the documents that the lawyers have identified as being crucial to the investigation. That is what I would fault the CCRC
1: for. As far as we were concerned, we were given all of the evidence that we asked for nobody ever saw you with a scratch
5: on your face?
3: No, because I didn't have any.
5: Bolton Evening News. Thursday the 21st of April 2005. Mum finds son hanged. I thought it was one of his little pranks, she tells Coroner.
1: My producer Will is reading an article published 16 years ago.
5: She'd arranged to visit her son Jason and look through the letterbox of his home
1: I wouldn't normally be interested in an old story about the death of a local man. But what this article doesn't say, and what very few people who read it at the time would have known, is that he was also a suspect for the same crime that Andrew Malkinson spent 17 years behind bars for. His
5: mother said she had a positive talk with her son earlier in the month.
1: Another thing this article doesn't mention is that in July 2003, this man was alleged to have turned up to work with a scratch on his face.
5: I reassured him that he had family that were close to him.
1: The victim of the brutal rape by a motorway embankment in Greater Manchester had lashed out as she was being attacked and scratched the rapist.
5: The man's father said he was a bubbly, happy-go-lucky lad and really family-orientated. He loved his kids.
1: You're listening to 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson Story a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Dugan, a reporter at The Sunday Times. This is a series about how one man spent almost two decades in jail for a crime he says he didn't commit. Despite trying repeatedly to clear his name, he remains a convicted sex offender. But now we've uncovered new evidence which cast doubt on the verdict and the criminal justice process.
6: Didn't add up, and I and I knew that identification evidence is notoriously unreliable, and that a lot of miscarriages of justice happen when it's given too much too much weight.
1: And in terms of following up other possible suspects, you mentioned that was something you kind of came across in the files. What's your impression of how much the police really did investigate those other suspects?
6: In some cases, very little. They seem to have taken some people's alibis as face value. It was clear to me from the material that I've seen, that their focus was primarily on Andy.
1: I'm having and a chat with James yeah, Burley, but... the investigator from Andy's legal team, Appeal. We've heard from James throughout the series.
6: What the police did is they released an e-fit of the suspect. That was published in the local newspaper and there was a flurry of calls from people who said, you know, this person looks like the e-fit.
1: We're discussing Greater Manchester Police's investigation back in 2003 and the scrutiny given to other suspects.
6: And it just feels like they got very little attention compared to Andy. The difficulty that we have all these years on, without any of the resources that the police have, is it's very difficult to investigate whether those other suspects could have, could have done it. I mean, really, that's something that, especially in light of the new DNA evidence that we have, the police need to be getting a move on with.
1: During this series, we've found out that new DNA analysis has identified a different unknown male. It's always been odd how Andy became the prime suspect in this case. He had no history of violence towards women, but he had been stopped by police a few weeks before the attack. He was new to the area, and they said they remembered his face. In part five of the series... We revealed that the Criminal Cases Review Commission misled us when they claimed they'd pursued every line of inquiry when they last looked at Andy's case back in 2018. Today, I have the final conversation with Andy, who reflects on his ongoing fight to clear his name. And I track down the former wife of a man from Salford who was one of the other suspects. Speaking for the first time, she has some worrying recollections of how the police conducted their investigation. This is the final episode, Part six. Police failings.
2: When everything first came about, like uh, there was a the effect put in the paper.
1: That's Deborah Hardman, who, along with her husband, met Andy on holiday, and who he later stayed with in Salford, Greater Manchester. They had a falling out, and the Harbins would end up in court testifying against Andy. In Part 5, Deborah told me they were reluctant witnesses. I've spoken to her a few more times on the phone now, as I had plenty more to ask.
2: My family was well known. I think when you known by the police, they sort of tried to pin everything on you um, if anything happened.
1: Deborah remembered when Andy first came to the police's attention. He'd been riding on the back of their son's motorbike.
2: Andrew wasn't a well-known face in this area. It was a new face. They didn't know anything of him. And then the incidents happened and then, you know, they got to have somebody.
1: She claimed the police had threatened her and her husband with arrest and forced them to go to court.
2: They'd send summons, papers to the house and we'd have to attend court. So either way, we, we had to go.
1: The police are entitled to take action to make a witness give evidence. But this time, Deborah told me something else. The other thing you mentioned um, was seeing on the on the paperwork describing previous convictions a, a pending
2: charge. Can you just explain that
1: a bit more? Because
2: yeah, for myself, far myself. Yeah, I think it was just all made up. Even though I had convictions when I was young because I was in children's homes and stuff, um, and this pending of mine was fraud and deception or something like that.
1: Was it mentioned in court, that pending? No. Details of Deborah and her husband's convictions were revealed to the jury in the trial, so it wouldn't be unusual for the police to show documents to a witness first. Deborah is saying that the sheet shown to her included a pending charge she knew nothing about and that it never came up again. If true, she seems to be suggesting it was done to pressure her to betray Andy in a negative way. I put this allegation to GMP but they didn't respond to this. And then, just as we were finishing up one of our chats, Deborah said this about the whole experience back in 2003
2: and 4. All in all, I think what had happened together was my family had been made to look like bad people to him. And he had been made to look the bad person to us. That's sorry, my school I was going mad. So, yeah, I think that's
1: how it was. If you didn't quite catch that, Deborah summed it up as my family had been made to look like bad people to him, Andrew, and he had been made to look a bad person to us. So, I'm back in London at the Sunday Times head office and I'm just about to try and call a woman who may have some more answers about the case. And I'm hoping she might provide a bit of context on a possible other suspect at the time, um, who was her ex-husband, and he was found hanged about a year and a half after the attack. Now, I don't know what she'll feel about me calling her out of the blue like this after all these years. Hello? Oh, hello. Is that Lisa?
7: It is, yes.
1: Hello, uh, my name's Emily Dugan. I'm a reporter at the Sunday Times newspaper. I'm looking into a historic police investigation in Little Holton that happened, I mean, nearly 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And your former husband was spoken to as part of it.
7: Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I remember that, yes.
1: Her words are being spoken by an actor. The attack took place um, in July 2003.
7: I do recall the rape. I think it happened on, um, what's that road called? Like Clegg's Lane, you know, where you go over Farm with Bridge? It. it was a really horrific rape, early hours of the morning.
1: It's reported that a colleague of Lisa's then husband called Crime Stoppers after the rape, saying he matched the description of the attacker and that he'd turned up to work with scratches on his face. Remember, the victim said she scratched her attacker. The police went to their home in October around three months after the crime.
7: I recall them coming and they said, like, um, I don't know if this sounds really bad, they said that they had someone for it, but they had to follow all lines of inquiry so that they didn't seem like they were being biased.
1: As far as you knew, was that the first Jason knew that he was a potential suspect?
7: Yes, yeah. I think he was as shocked as I was.
1: Back in 2003, Jason was in his late 20s, The couple had a young family and were living less than a mile from where the attack took place. Andy had no previous history of violence towards women. But I discovered this wasn't the case with Jason.
7: The relationship from the beginning, as soon as we moved in together, it became pretty violent. Like, when I was 18. As we got older, I kind of learned to stand up for myself, so it wasn't as bad.
1: And what sort of things would he do?
7: Punch me. (laughs) Stuff like that. He never beat me. He just, like, he probably just, like, dragged me around by my hair, stuff like that. He never really left a mark or anything. I mean, I phoned the police several times. They were called out several times. But obviously in them days, it was just, oh, it's domestic violence. There's nothing we can do. You'll take him back tomorrow. You know, stuff like that.
1: It's grim listening to Lisa describe the domestic violence and the apparent attitude taken by the police. Lisa believes she confirmed to police that Jason was home the night of the attack. At the time, they were going for a breakup.
7: If I've said to the police that he was there, then he would have been there. I'd have gone to bed with him being there. I wouldn't have lied.
1: For sure. Although, is it possible that even if you didn't lie, that you just wouldn't necessarily remember from night to night? Bearing in mind the interview was in October and this was trying to remember one random night in July.
7: I've got a shocking memory, trust me. <laughs> I don't know if it was bad then as it is now, but yeah, obviously if it's just a random night, then no. Probably wouldn't remember, especially like three months apart.
1: Do you remember him having a scratch on his face in July? I mean, I know it's a long time ago.
7: No, I had I had three young children at the time, so no. My head was probably just all over the place because it wasn't long after that we split up and stuff, you see. So no, I don't recall him having a scratch.
1: I know it's difficult when someone's died, especially to kind of, consider whether someone's capable of a crime like this but he was violent is it possible he did it
7: i don't think so like he never did anything like that to me he was ever violent in the bedroom or anything like that so no i don't think he would have done anything like that no
1: lisa then mentioned that during the questioning the police had asked jason to take his top off
7: they looked at his front and he had to hold his arms up like you know like above your head kind of thing and and turn around and that was it i think he never left the house. He never had to go and talk to anybody. He was just at the house.
1: I can only presume this was to check if he had chest hair. The woman who was raped had described her attacker as having a shiny, hairless chest, and she didn't mention any tattoos. But Jason did have chest hair and tattoos. Also, there was a discrepancy over the height. Lisa said Jason was six foot one. The victim said her attacker was five eight. But the same was the case for Andy. He was taller, 5'11", and he also had chest hair and tattoos. The thing is, when you look at the e-fit of the attacker, both Jason and Andy are white with short dark hair, and they could resemble the image. It just shows you the challenge of relying solely on identification evidence. Anyway, I wanted to know more about the police visit.
7: And how long, can you remember how long it lasted roughly? Less than 20 minutes. They weren't here very long.
1: And did they ask you any questions?
7: if he was with me that night or do I recall you know what I mean something like that I'm assuming if I've said that yeah he was with me then they'll have asked me that
1: the police should have known Lisa was a victim of domestic violence after all she says she called them about it so why as far as we know was she only asked about his alibi when Jason was present and why was there a delay of three months between the attack and police knocking on Jason's door after all If he had had scratches on his face, they'd have surely healed in that time. I put this to the force, but they didn't respond to these points. After the call, I spoke to Andy's lawyer, Emily Bolton.
4: Well, I'm obviously troubled that he had a record for being violent and violent towards a woman, uh, and this was not picked up. I mean, I would have thought joining those dots was fairly elementary policing. However, Them saying they already had someone for it and this was just, you know, I think she said something like they didn't want to look biased so they were dotting all the I's and crossing the T's. I mean, that could be a way of putting a potential suspect at at his ease. I mean, I'm not saying it was, I'm not saying it wasn't, but I don't think the police would rush through the door saying we're absolutely certain it's this person. That wouldn't necessarily be the best tactics to get the most information out of both him and his wife. I am concerned, however, that she wasn't spoken to separately.
1: In part five of this series, we found out that Jason was a relative of John and Deborah Hardman. If they knew he was a suspect there could have been a conflict of interest over their testimony at Andy's trial. I've since learnt he was John Hardman's nephew.
2: Hello?
1: Hey, Deborah, it's Emily at the Sunday Times. How are you doing? All right. I called Deborah up to ask if they knew Jason had been a suspect. She was completely taken aback and said they'd never, ever heard anything like that. I asked GMP why this fact was not disclosed at trial. They didn't respond to that point. I should say that just because Jason was a suspect and a relative of the Hardmans doesn't mean I believe he committed this brutal rape. But what his ex-wife said about the police's conduct does raise questions. I'm trying to get a sense of the way different suspects were investigated and how thorough this was. Here's what Judge Michael Henschel said when summing up at Andy's trial in 2004. It's read by someone else.
5: ...that many names were put forward to the police in the course of the investigation... He said most of them were followed up after the defendant had been dealt with. He agreed that some were never traced, including one, rather more than one, who had previous convictions for rape. The officer was not asked any more details of those people, such as their ages or their heights or anything of that sort, but that was the situation.
1: We know there were many other suspects that GMP didn't fully investigate, some with far worse histories than Jason. Earlier this year, GMP announced a new chief constable, Stephen Watson.
3: All crime reported to GMP will be faithfully recorded, properly investigated and concluded to the satisfaction of the victim. And where victims are vulnerable, they will be safeguarded.
1: And he took over in May. Might this have any effect on Andy's case? Last year, his lawyers had made a complaint about the force's conduct. But we've now learned the Chief Constable has suspended the investigation into their own behaviour. They say it could interfere with their ongoing review of the case and Andy's application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Here's part of the letter appeal received, read by my producer Will.
5: The outcome of the complaint investigation is likely to be one of learning as opposed to misconduct or gross misconduct. By contrast, Mr Malkinson's convictions are for serious offences and therefore I consider that the review of aspects of the original criminal investigation ought to take primacy over the complaint investigation. But Emily Bolton was unimpressed.
1: When I
4: read that they were suspending the complaint, I mean, it was frankly absurd. Why now, after nearly a year, they've indicated that they feel it might prejudice the investigation by the Criminal Cases Review Commission? Well, I don't see how that works, because the Criminal Cases Review Commission is an entirely independent body, independent of the GMP, independent of Andrew Malkinson. And secondly, they said it would prejudice the GMP review of the case. Now, we've not been told the parameters of that review. I just can't see how investigating that would trip up any investigation of other suspects which is the review they should be doing and if they're not investigating other suspects what are they doing and why are they not doing so hello i'm emma tucker editor of the sunday times it's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters get to the heart of the story every day with the times and the sunday times subscribe today and enjoy one month free visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: To find out if it's right for you.
1: From the moment I opened Andy's letter last year, the one he wrote to me from prison,
3: Dear Emily, first of all, thank you for listening.
1: I've been preoccupied with trying to unpick what happened to him. Over the past six episodes, we've tried to piece together the way things unfolded for Andy and how he says he got caught up in the criminal justice system. So, where are we? And are we any the wiser? Andy was an outsider and a bit of a drifter. And there are certainly elements of his past that would make people wonder about his character. The passport offence in Thailand, for example. Or the way he ended up befriending the Hardmans, a family of petty criminals. We'll probably never know the full story of Andy's life. But the fact that someone has associated with some unsavoury characters doesn't mean they're guilty of rape. When reporting these sorts of cases... It's not uncommon for people to react with comments like, well, they're clearly a bit dodgy. But that's not evidence. For me, it's not a good enough reason to believe someone committed such a serious crime. Andy spent roughly ten years longer in jail, insisting on his innocence. If he was guilty, wouldn't he have opted for a quicker return to normal life? Andy was 38 when he went to prison, which, as it happens, is the age I am now. It's hard to imagine what it would be like not to emerge back into the world until I was 55. Many of the red flags over the handling of his case are about policing. We now know there are questions about the reliability of two witnesses who said they saw Andy that night. And we've always known that there were no forensics placing Andy at the scene. The prosecution said this was because he was forensically aware, a dubious concept at best. But this year... New analysis found DNA of an unknown male. Greater Manchester police still won't say if they'll check this DNA against other possible suspects. Andy's lawyers have never been happy with GMP's conduct.
4: It's poor policing pre-trial. It was poor policing in terms of the evidence that was presented at trial and now it's poor policing in post-conviction proceedings in not addressing this issue as a matter of urgency.
1: Throughout this series, I've repeatedly requested an interview with GMP, but they've declined and say they're cooperating with the CCRC. I can't say if Andy is innocent to the crime for which he spent 17 years in jail. But I can say, having investigated, I now believe his conviction is unsafe. Throughout this series, we've heard from various people involved in Andy's life. Those he knew before the crime, those he's met since, and some who've never known him at all, but whose lives have all
6: been affected by his. I hope that once this is all done and dusted, politicians will seriously look at the current system we have and say, what needs to, to change? That's James Burley again, who's been investigating
1: Andy's case for the past
6: four years. He's hoping to write a book, and yeah, it would be nice to read that one day and for it to have a happy ending. The Greater Manchester Police motto is
1: fighting crime and protecting the people. That's Andy's mum, Trisha. But I don't think that's happened. It hasn't happened to Andrew or the victim. She's been the victim and they haven't protected her.
5: I was being given a version of events and it was the only version I was going to get.
1: Manchester Evening News' chief reporter, Neil Keeling, says looking back now... He wasn't allowed beyond the police's narrative.
5: There's aspects of this that you have unearthed that I didn't know about. At some point, the question's got to be asked, are GMP going to reinvestigate?
4: There's more people harmed than you can possibly understand.
1: Rape survivor and criminal justice campaigner Jennifer Thompson.
4: It's not like a single straight-line bullet. It is more like a bomb that explodes and anybody that's near that bomb is going to get shrapnel and going to get hurt. And some people are not going to make it out. That's
1: a wrongful conviction. He needs this justice and his name to be cleared. And his former girlfriend Karen, who he lived with in Holland. And that he can live uh, a normal life and can do nice things. He's uh, 55. He's still kind of young, you know. That's what I wish him. I wish him all the best. Whilst this series has been going out, people have got in touch to tell me about their own potential miscarriages of justice. I hope to keep investigating, but back to Andy. It's been nearly a year since he left prison, and I met him for one final chat. We waited for the sun to set, and headed to a nearby hill, a spot he says is good for one of his favourite pastimes, stargazing. Movie. It's a star movie.
3: Oh wow! That might be the space station.
1: It's moving really clearly.
3: Yeah, st- the space station is bright. And it's
1: not fading.
3: No, it's not. It's not a meteor. That's crazy. I've never seen a space station.
1: You've never seen one. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you went stargazing?
3: Yeah, I was I was quite young, about seven or eight. Do
1: you remember what you spotted?
3: The plow. There's a major and Orion. Really easy to spot.
1: So that's pretty good going for a first time.
3: Once you get your eye in, very distinctive patterns.
1: You could see a star or two from prison, but not really.
3: Yeah, nothing, nothing really.
1: What does it feel like to be looking at them again now?
3: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I could spend all night out here, just fall asleep.
1: What is it about the night sky, do you think, that so inspired you all this time?
3: Just the vastness. It's just amazing. Just makes you think about your place in the universe.
1: And. You couldn't access that when you were in prison?
3: No, no, not at all. So many times it felt like the walls were crushing me and I was being suffocated and actually I had a lot of panic attacks, wake up struggling to breathe. My biggest daydreams was being in a huge, empty, desolate expanse on my own to get out of that box.
1: Have you had any counselling? No. Would you like to?
3: Uh, If I'd like to, maybe it'd be helpful.
1: Hearing you describe that, I just... Yeah. It's an unimaginable feeling.
3: Yeah, it is. It's horrific.
1: How do you feel now, looking back?
3: About what happened?
1: about your life.
3: These things happen to people. It's like people who get hit by lightning. Except it wasn't a force of nature, it was humans... Humans did it, being self-interested. It's taught me a lot about myself as well, mainly, I think. you You don't truly know yourself until you've been subjected to extreme adversity, I would say. And, you know, it's a very painful process, but you learn a lot about yourself and about others. In a way, learning not to trust people is a good thing because... You shouldn't just trust people. We're all fallible and frail, and I sort of learned the hard way. You've got to be a bit philosophical sometimes and and reflective rather than letting your emotions run away with you. It's easy just to be angry all the time, uh, which I am a lot actually, but you've got to temper that with um, introspection.
1: What do you want to do now?
3: I want to clear my name, that's all I care about. I want the authorities to recognise I've been telling the truth the whole time. After that, I can live my life. I can't live, I can't live until I've cleared it, because it's, it's false. We paused
1: for a moment. It was now completely dark. It was a clear night, and suddenly there were stars all around us. That's by far the brightest one, I don't know if that's significant.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's almost dead overhead, that one. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Oh, that's that one, it's risen from over there. So the Earth rotating that way and it's moved up there. And that one there is uh, Cygnus, which is a very, very distinctive summer constellation. Cygnus the Swan. You always see it in, the, in high summer in the northern hemisphere. It's quite easy to see the, uh, the outspread wings.
1: What about relationships?
3: Uh, I'm not interested in relationships right now. Well, I'm in such turmoil trying to secure justice. It wouldn't be fair to be with somebody. I wouldn't be able to give someone my time. It, it wouldn't be right. It's too complicated. You know, I'd rather be on my own. Uh, yeah, oh, by the way, I was convicted for. Mm, what? You could tell them that you're innocent, but would they believe you? I don't know.
1: And what about obviously you lost touch, right, with your son? Have you been able to see him since you came out?
3: I've seen him a few times. Yeah, it's been—I uh, won't say strained, even, but difficult. You know, because there's a big gap. I went away to live in Holland, and so it's partly my fault. I didn't stay in touch, but then. All this happened and, of course, there's another huge void on top of it.
1: So when was the last time you'd seen him, when you finally met up with him again?
3: 1991.
1: And how old was he then?
3: He was four.
1: So that was honestly the last time you'd even seen him?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Is he angry about that?
3: No, he doesn't show it, but I expected him to be angry and maybe he is. Maybe he is and rightly so, but um, I do regret not staying in touch I never said I was perfect I'm just not a fucking rapist
1: I guess just on the scale of time that passed what would you like to have done with that time?
3: I, I, I would just like to live my life my humble little life my needs were simple. I would have just enjoyed working where I could and travelling when I'd saved enough money. What harm was I doing?
1: Can you make sense of 17 years?
3: No. It was a complete waste. Wasted my, the only life I'll ever have. There's no afterlife. We're very fortunate to be alive. We're very fortunate to come into existence and find ourselves in this beautiful universe, and every life is extremely precious, so no I can't, I can't, I can't forgive, and I can't really come to terms with it.
1: Andy's case is currently being looked at by the Criminal Cases Review Commission. We don't know when they'll make their decision as to whether it will be referred back to the Court of Appeal. Andy continues to protest his innocence for a crime he spent 17 years behind bars for. He remains a convicted sex offender. You've been listening to part six, the final episode of 17 years, the Andrew Malkinson story with me, Emily Dugan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe, with assistance from Brenna Dardolf. The executive producers are Poppy Damon and Lynn Jones, with original music and sound design by Tom Birchall. You can now listen to the whole series in full on the Reporter podcast feed. Just search Reporter wherever you get your podcasts. And a special thanks to the Law Practice and Charity Appeal, for their contributions throughout the series. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. Also, if you have any information that you want to share on Andy's case, or remember anything from the time, you can contact me directly. My details are also in the description notes.